22 is our text for today. This is the 11th sermon in our series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 39, handwritten pages and four typed pages. The title of the sermon today is Vice Grip. I would ask you please to turn in your copy of the scriptures to Romans chapter 1, and as you do, please remember through the remainder of this sermon and throughout the remainder of your life that God loves you. Listen please as I read the final five verses of Romans chapter 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Father in heaven, we are clearly bad. Jesus is good. We need help. And so, Lord, in an act of kindness today, would you by your spirit please show us, Lord, that we are bad and show us, Lord, that Jesus is good. And Lord, please, by your kind mercy, rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from damnation. And Lord, grant us, Lord, please, that we might know Jesus, the only one who is good, In his name we pray, amen. So the overarching theme for today is that we are bad. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Here is the outline for today. Point number one, why we are bad. Point number two, how we are bad. And then point number three, bad people want others to be bad. Human behavior is sometimes categorized in the alliterated double V of virtue or vice. Uh, I tried to look up virtue or vice online, and I was informed that virtues are good character traits and vices are bad character traits. And I asked myself, who in the world gets paid to write these definitions? Uh, A vice squad is a section within the police force charged with the enforcement of laws concerning gambling, pornography, prostitution, and the illegal use of liquor and narcotics. In the ancient Near East, it was common for authors or orators to use a vice list. Uh, They are also all over the New Testament. Just a few minutes ago, Jacob gave us two examples from Matthew 7, which is the uh, saying of Jesus that evil comes from within, and then he tells us a list, a vice list of those evils that come from within. And then another list from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, a list, and those who live that way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the longest vice list in the Bible is our text today. It has 21 items. But even this vice list is comparatively short and pithy compared with some of the vice lists which were written in antiquity. For example, Philo of Alexandria, who was born somewhere between 20 and 10 BC, and he died somewhere between A.D. 40 and A.D. 50, uh, he was a very influential man, a very prolific writer. He represented Hellenistic Judaism. Uh, He, however, did have an allegorical method of communicating, which was sometimes confusing, and, and he wrote 
about two sisters, uh, allegorically, Lady Pleasure, who was beautiful uh, to the eye, and Lady Virtue, who was a rough woman and a tough taskmaster. And he warns that if you hang out with Lady Pleasure, uh, she will drag you down into the following vices. Now let me just say, I want you to brace yourself right now because this is the longest list I have ever seen. It is certainly the longest list that I have ever read. Here is the vice list of what will happen to you if you hang out with Lady Pleasure according to Philo of Alexandria. Know then, my good friend, that if you become a votary, that is a monk or a nun of pleasure, you will be all these things. A bold, cunning, audacious, unsociable, uncourteous, inhumane, lawless, savage, ill-tempered, unrestrainable, worthless man, deaf to advice, foolish, full of evil acts, unteachable, unjust, unfair, one who has no participation with others, one who cannot be trusted in his agreements, one with whom there is no peace, covetous, most lawless, unfriendly, homeless, cityless, sedacious, faithless, disorderly, impious, unholy, unsettled, unstable, uninitiated, meaning having no affiliation, profane, polluted, indecent, destructive, murderous, liberal, abrupt, brutal, slavish, cowardly, intemperate, irregular, disgraceful, shameful, doing and suffering all infamy, colorless, immoderate, insatiable, insolent, conceited, self-willed, mean. All you're ever going to be is mean, envious, uh, caluminous, which means you defame others, quarrelsome, slanderous, greedy, deceitful, cheating, rash, ignorant, stupid, inharmonious, dishonest, disobedient, obstinate, tricky, swindling, insincere, suspicious, hated, absurd, difficult to detect, difficult to avoid, destructive, evil-minded, disproportionate, an unreasonable chatterer, a <laughs> prosperer, a gossip, a vain babbler, a flatterer, a fool, full of heavy sorrow, weak in bearing grief, trembling at every sound, inclined to delay, inconsiderate, improvident, which means you don't have any foresight or thought for the future, impudent, neglectful of good, unprepared, ignorant of virtue, always in the wrong, erring, stumbling, ill-managed, ill-governed, a glutton, a captive, a spendthrift, easily yielding, most crafty, double-minded, double-tongued, perfidious, which means deceitful, treacherous, unscrupulous, always unsuccessful, always in want, infirm of purpose, fickle, a wanderer, a follower of others, yielding to impulses, open to the attacks of enemies, mad, easily satisfied, fond of life, fond of vainglory, passionate, ill-tempered, lazy, a procrastinator, susceptible, incurable, full of evil, jealousies, despairing, full of tears, rejoicing in evil, frantic, beside yourself, without any steady character, contriving evil, eager for disgraceful gain, selfish, a willing slave, an eager enemy, a demagogue, means you manipulate common people, a bad steward, stiff-necked, effeminate, outcast, confused, discarded, mocking, injurious, vain, full of absolute sheer misery, and forgetful to lower the toilet seat." That last one wasn't there, but because it's Mother's Day, I added that. Now, what's interesting about this list is he says, if you hang out with Lady Pleasure, (laughs) you're going to become all of these things. Wow. I think Linda Ronstadt said it better when she simply said, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, baby, you're no good. As I said earlier, vice lists were very well known in Paul's day. Well, let's put this particular vice list in context. Paul is writing to the church at Rome about the year A.D. 57. Uh, This church is comprised mostly of Gentile Christians. They make up the majority, but a minority of the church members were Jewish Christians. 
And Paul needs to explain how these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians need to get along with one another. But first, he establishes his own credibility, and he does so by spelling out his gospel in detail. So in chapter 1, which we are concluding today, he demonstrates how the Gentiles are guilty before God. And then in chapter 2, he's going to explain how Jews are guilty before God. And then in chapter 3, he's going to explain how everybody is guilty before God, for all have sinned. Now, our text today is the culmination or the conclusion of how the Gentile world is guilty before God. And previously, we studied how God, through nature, has made himself known to everyone. His existence is self-evident. But mankind has rejected that revelation and has suppressed the truth about God. So even though everybody knows that he exists, it's evident from nature, they do not acknowledge God, they do not honor God, and they are not thankful to him. And sinful man, as a result of this, then makes a trade or an exchange. They give up the living God in exchange for dead idols. Well, God then, in turn, gives these people up to themselves. They start to view the world in an Alice in Wonderland, upside-down, distorted way. One expression of this distortion is perversion. Uh, that is explained in detail, I believe, because it uh, illustrates most clearly the upside-down, distorted, against nature absurdity of perversion, that it is against nature. Uh, that sin, interestingly, does not appear in the vice list at the end of Romans 1, nor does any sin like it appear in that list. It is, however, a vivid illustration of what happens when God gives a person up to himself or herself. But it is not the only expression of God's abandonment of people. There are 20, uh, 21 other items to consider. Now, as we make our way through these final five verses of Romans chapter 1, let's go, please, to our outline. Remember the overarching theme, we are bad. Here is point number one, why we are bad, and that is explained in verse 28. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is the third time that Paul has used the phrase, God gave them up. Literally, God captured them and handed them over. This idea is in verse 24 where God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. And then in Romans 8, I'm sorry, 126, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And now here finally in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. Do you see the common thread or the common theme in all three of those examples? It is that God is giving the person up to themselves. As I said in the last sermon, and it's very important to note this. He is not giving them up to Satan. He is not giving them up to the system of this world. He is not even giving them up to the final judgment and damnation in eternal hell, although that will happen. But what God is doing is he is giving them over to themselves. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, not so much in that there will be a great judgment day, at the end of time, but there indeed will be a great judgment day coming. Uh, but that's not what is being spelled out here. The wrath of God is currently being manifest in that God is giving people over to their own wicked hearts. And you can look at any of the items on this vice list, any one of those 21 sins that are listed there, and you can say, well, I don't do that, or I've really never done that. Or, or, or any expression of, of the sins found in verses 26 and 27 and say, that doesn't describe me. And I will say to you, amen, for the sake of argument, I believe you, but just know, and this is really important, that the only, O-N-L-Y, the only reason why you don't do those things is because God, for now, has not yet given you up to you or to that particular vice. 
He has not handed you over to you in that particular area, at least not yet. His kind, merciful, sovereign grace is restraining you or holding you back from being all that you actually are in your depraved heart. So please understand, we are bad. Uh, We are bad by nature. Uh, You do not become bad by doing bad things. You are bad, and that is why you do bad things. You do not become a sinner when you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. And please forgive the obnoxious simplicity, but it's really important as we go through the text for us to understand that we, by nature, are bad. Now, what I'm about to tell you right now is the most important thing that I am going to tell you today. And that is, you need to know that when you sin, it is a choice that you make, and it is a bad choice. But that is not why, W-H-Y, that is not why. It is not the explanation of what is happening at the root level. And I think so often when we deal with ourselves and our own sanctification or we try to deal with others in discipleship and we see sins that they commit and we start to deal with those sins specifically and say, you shouldn't do this, stop doing that. Well, the truth of the matter is they shouldn't do that and they need to stop doing that. But that is not the explanation or the understanding of why we do what we do. Sinful actions should frighten you, not because those things are going to get you into trouble. If I do this, I will get a disease. If I do this, I will get a divorce. If I do this, I will go to jail. If I do this, I will lose my good reputation. If I do this, I will be sad. If I do this, I will be unfulfilled, etc., etc. Yes, those things will happen, and those things will happen because of cause and effect and because God is not mocked. But still, we're not getting to the root. That is not the darkest thing that can be said about sin, that you do it and then you'll get punished for it. That, that's, that's, not the, that's not the heart of understanding sin. Sin, which you commit in your life, should frighten you. This is the most important thing I'm going to tell you. Primarily, it should sober you, primarily, because at its very heart, that sin is an indicator to some extent, of the withdrawal of God from your life or distance from God in your life or an absence of his restraining activity in your heart and life. Do you understand? Let me say it again. I don't think I said it very well. Listen to me and look at me. You commit sins. Those sins ought to frighten you not because of the consequences of those sins, although you should be fearful of the consequences of those sins. But the reason that those sins should frighten you and disturb you is because they are indicators. They are giving evidence that in some way and in some form, there is some kind of distance between yourself and God There is a removal from God. There is a removal of his restraint from your life. They are indicators of something which is far worse. The bad thing is not the sin that you do, although it is very bad. The bad thing is that you are becoming separated from God. That is the bad thing. The bad thing is that his hand of restraint is being removed from you. That is why sin should frighten you to death. Sins which you commit are indicators. You know what an indicator is, right? Um, Here's an illustration of, of an indicator. If you have shortness of breath and chest pains, that is an indicator that you're having a heart attack. Here's here's another indicator, all right? I now know that I am starting on the decline mentally. Here's an indicator as to why I know that. I like to play chess online. Seven years ago, when I played chess online, I could win about half of my games, or maybe a little more than half of my games. Now... I lose all of my games. (laughs) What is happening? 
Me losing those games is an indicator that I'm starting to lose it in, in my mind. Do, do you understand? I, it's, it's not that back then I was playing people that were really poor at chess and now I'm playing the people that are really good. No, actually I'm playing inferior people now, but I'm losing now. Why? I am starting to lose it upstairs. Just this week I was sitting working on something and I needed to remember someone's name in the church. Now, this is someone that I have known for years, and, and they are in the room right now. Don't ask me who it is, but I will not tell you. I'm, I'm too arrogant to do that. And I sat there forever. I envisioned this person. I could tell you a million things about them. The only thing I could tell you about the, that I could not tell you about the person, I didn't remember their name. I had to go to the church directory and look for them, see their picture, and then their name came to mind. That is an indicator that things are starting to slip in my mind. Let me give you another indicator, and it has to do with chess. I like to play chess online, like seven years. Sin at its very heart is an indicator of God, at least in part, withdrawing his restraining hand. It is an indicator of distance from God. So sin is not what you do. Sin is who you are. When I am restrained from committing an actual sin, that is an evidence of the hand of God mercifully holding me back. When I follow through and actually commit the sin, it is a horrifying indicator that God is loosening his grip, at least for the moment, and allowing me to be me. Now, that doesn't mean that I am unsaved. But what it does mean is that whether one is saved or unsaved, every time that we actually commit a sin, it is an indicator of distance from God. I know I'm pounding this in the ground. I know I'm being redundant. I know I'm being repetitive. But it is so important to understand why we sin. It is an indicator that he is not holding me back from me. And that is why Paul says three times in verses 24, 26, and 28, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. So instead of viewing your sin as the bad stuff that you do, and sin is indeed the bad stuff that you do, view sin as the judgment from God that he is withdrawing. View sin itself as an indicator of distance from God. View sin itself as the horrifying permission that God is granting us to be ourselves. So the why of the 21-item vice list are, are, are shown forth as indicators that God gave them up, but we need to dig a little bit deeper in the verse. And that is, what is the why behind the why? What is the why behind the why? And again in verse 28, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So there's a reason why he, he withdraws. Why does he withdraw? The reason is that we did not see fit to acknowledge God. Literally, what it is saying is that they did not find God to be a worthwhile subject to think about and to talk about and to honor and to thank and to praise and to love and to study and to obey and to serve and to believe and to worship. God was not worth our time. The King James says, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Now, this is true both in society and individually. I want to talk about society first. We as a society do not find God a worthy subject to occupy our time. Please think about entertainment for a moment. Think about the thousands of hours that you have spent watching television or viewing a movie. Does the absence of the God of the Bible in a positive way not cause you to scratch your head a little bit when thinking about all of the ways in which you are entertained. Let's talk just about the United States of America. In the United States of America, many people profess 
to be Christians. Now, I know that not everyone that professes to be a Christian is actually saved. But if you take a poll and you ask people, what are you, what is your religion, they will say that Christianity is my religion. Does not the total, and I mean absolute total, absence of God in entertainment seem to you to be a little bit disproportionate? I've been to many Beach Boys concerts and Brian Wilson concerts. I have been entertained by the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. And every time that Brian Wilson gets ready to sing, God only knows, he will say, this is the only top 40 song with God in the title. Now, that is not absolutely true. And many of the things that Brian Wilson says are not absolutely true. But generally speaking, that is true. Can you right now sit and think of secular songs which you have heard on the radio over the course of your life where God is in the title? But it's not just in entertainment. Think about literature. Think about the media. Think about the evening news. Think about sports. Think about politics. Now, I am not saying that in all of these platforms, all of them have to boldly espouse Reformed theology. Now, I'm not even passing judgment or saying, Wow, I long for the good old days. That's not my point at all. I am just pointing out that there is a strange, unusual, head-scratching, disproportionate gagging of God in society. And that has to be intentional. That has to be choreographed. Mathematically, it is impossible to be a nation of 330 million people where 210 million of those people, or 63%, claim to be Christian, and at the same time, there is not even a whiff of God other than the using of his name as a curse word in entertainment. Let's compare God with murder for a second. Last year, in the United States, there were roughly... 22,000 murders. Now, let's keep the the numbers in mind. 330 million. 22,000. 63% or 210 million Christians. 22,000 murders. It's a fairly small number. Do you know how many people, percentage-wise, were murdered in the United States last year? Point zero, 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 six, six percent got murdered. Here's what would have to happen in order for murder in the United States to reach 1% of our population. Let's keep the numbers in mind. We are 330 million. 63% of us claim to be Christians. An infinitesimal amount of people, comparatively speaking, have been murdered, but let's say we want that number to get up to 1%. Not 63%. But to 1%. Here's what would have to happen in order to get the number to 1%. There would have to be another 308,000 murders in the United States per year in order for us to get to 1%. So, why am I saying this? I'm saying to tell you that the actual number of murders in the USA is ridiculously below 1%. And at the same time, 63% of the population claims to be Christians, yet there are almost no positive mentions of God or of the Bible in television, movies, music, literature, politics, or sports. Yet at the same time, homicide is a prolific topic on TV and in the movies. I'm not even arguing here that homicide should be eliminated from entertainment and drama. I I enjoy a a murder mystery as much as anybody else. I'm not even speaking to that subject. I'm simply putting out to you, where does this strange absence of God come from? It has to be intentional. Anybody with any math skills at all would tell you it has to be intentional. 
But you know what's worse than entertainment? Education. Send your child to public school for 13 years, 180 days a year. Send them off to a university for four years. And in those 17 years, they will learn nothing about God at all. In fact, they will learn things about God which are false. Now, I do know that there are brave teachers in the public school system who will buck the system and sneak in an occasional word about his glorious design in creation or his precision in mathematics or his sovereign hand of providence in history. But that will not be explicitly stated over a prolonged period of time, and it certainly will not be the foundation of learning. Do you understand that what is happening in the public school system has... There's learning that is going on, but do you understand that none of that learning has as its foundation God? Yet, 63% of us claim to be Christians, and yet God does not appear in curriculum in any significant way. Does that not just raise a little bit of an eyebrow in your thinking? Now, this is not a commercial for homeschooling or Christian school or classical education. That is not my point today. We can talk about that if you like, and maybe we should talk about that. I am simply pointing out the why, W-H-Y, of the 21 vices in the vice list. You trace it back to its roots. And what is the root of it all? It is God himself withdrawing and distancing himself from us. It is God giving us up to ourselves. And then you trace it back even deeper and deeper and deeper, and you ask, why? Why has he distanced himself from us? And the answer comes in Romans 1.28, and that is that we did not find him to be a worthy topic of discussion, to honor, to thank, to love, to obey, to study, to worship, and to love. Society, whether it is the intentional secularist who, who, who keep God out or the Christians who allow the secularist to do it or whether it is both, we have collectively as a society deemed God to be passe and irrelevant and out of bounds and silenced. And God has said, okay, if you wish for me not to be involved in your culture, well, very well then, I will leave you to you, and you, plural, can become who you really are. Yet as true as all of that may be with reference to society, that is not really the point of Romans 128. Romans 128 is not a description of society in moral decline, although though it is an accurate description, but it is a picture of the individual human being. Romans 128 is a picture of you. It, it, is, it is me. It is Ed Moore. It is you. And ultimately, here's what happens in our lives. We commit sinful acts against God and against one another because of our distance from God. John Piper put it this way. Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. Now, have you ever asked yourself on an individual level? I've asked myself this, and I'm a pastor. Why do I find it so difficult to have sustained thoughts about God? Why are our prayer times so short and quick and sometimes even non-existence. Why is it so awkward to talk about God, even with other like-minded Christians? Why is it so laborious to listen to a sermon? Why do we drop out of well-intentioned New Year's resolution Bible reading plans? Why is it so unnatural to have the praise of God upon our lips? The answer to that question is found in Romans 1.28. It is because by nature, left to ourselves, we are not naturally drawn to think about and speak about and be enraptured in the glory of God. But we, by nature... The, the, the gravitational pull of all of our hearts, me included, is to not retain God in our knowledge, but, but to think about something else. 
We, left to ourselves, best case scenario, are content to live without God. Worst case scenario, we wish that he would just go away and leave us alone, stop bothering us. In fact, it would be fine if he was dead. And that's who we are apart from grace. Notice also in verse 28, in answering the question why we are bad, not only is it because God has given us up, not only is it because we have dismissed him from our thinking, but notice also because of our own minds. Verse 28 says, God gave them over to a debased mind or a depraved mind. Here's how Douglas Moo put it. He wrote a commentary on Romans. He writes and writes very accurately. People, have, people who have refused to acknowledge God end up with minds that are disqualified from being able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. The result, of course, is that they do things that are not proper, end quote, simply put, and I hope you understand that. Our sins start in our minds. You do not do anything that you do not first think about, and the reason that you think about it is because you are bad, and I am bad. And so when your mind and your thinking is twisted, then what's going to happen is your actions are going to follow. Sinful action is the judgment for sinful thinking. Sinful action is the judgment for sinful thinking. Sinful action is the judgment for sinful thinking. And sinful thinking occurs when we deem God an unfit or not worthwhile subject to contemplate. So, point number one, why we are bad. Point number two, how we are bad. In other words, in what specific ways are we bad? How does this badness manifest itself in our lives? Well, again, here is the vice list from the Apostle Paul. Here are the 21 answers. Here are the 21 indicators, verses 29 through 31. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Those are the 21 indicators. We're not going to get into all 21 of these Rather, what I would like to do is just to give you eight overarching thoughts or comments concerning these 21 items. First one is this, and it is really important for you to note this. Paul is not saying that these things are bad, so don't do them. Let's be clear. These things are bad, and you shouldn't do them, but that's not why they are listed here. These items are listed here in order to represent what a person without God looks like. Now, there are other places in Scripture where we get a vice list and we are commanded not to live that way and we're told that we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven if we do live that way. But these 21 items serve another purpose and that is that they are indicators. That's our key word today. They are indicators like losing all of your chess games or not remembering someone's name. It's an indicator. These are indicators that there is a distance from God. Number two, this is not an exhaustive list. It's the longest list in the New Testament, but not, it's not an exhaustive list. If you were paying attention to the vice list from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, which Jacob read earlier, there are very few items on that list which are repeated in this list. And the vice list which Paul gave in Galatians 5, there are 15 vices listed there that, that they precede the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know that of those 15 vices listed in Galatians chapter 5, only one of them is repeated in this list, and that is envy? You see, very few lists in the Bible are all-encompassing or exhaustive. These 21 items are merely representative, and, and they are not intended to include every sin that every debased sinner commits. Of note, for example, is that there, in this 21-item uh, vice list, there are absolutely zero sexual sins mentioned. So you see what I mean. Number three, there's a lot of overlap 
within the list itself. There's a lot of items that kind of are repeated. So I ask, what is the difference between unrighteousness and evil? Now, I understand that there is a slight nuanced difference between the two, but, but honestly, it's pretty much the same thing. Or what about gossips and slanderers? I understand that there is a difference, but there's not much difference. There's overlap. Or what's the difference between haughty or being boastful? A little bit of difference, but, but none to, to speak of. They're, 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 they're synonyms. They're interchangeable words. All that to say, the list is probably not intended to be read and dissected with a microscope where we look at every single item one at a time. What would you have done this morning if I walked in and said, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and I would just like to tell you that for the next 21 weeks, we are going to look at one sin per week. That's even too slow for me. I can tell you what would happen... (laughs) At the, at the end of every sermon, I wouldn't be say, well, we're getting there, uh, because it, I, I, I don't have enough life left in order to get through the book of Romans if we do it this way. And, but it's not laziness in my part that's causing me to take these as a chunk. But I think if you're sitting in the church of Rome and this letter is being read for the first time, it, it's more like a wave that hits you and knocks you over rather than a drip, drip, drip. I I think it's the rapid fire, closely associated sins probably are intended to be digested in one gulp rather than like M&Ms one at a time. Number four, there is a loose grammatical structure and thematic structure to the list. And because you don't care what it is and you don't want to know what it is, I am not going to tell you what it is because even if I were to tell you, it would not help you with your sanctification. If you are interested in knowing what the grammatical structure of this is, then I'll explain it to you, but I know that if the phone doesn't ring, I know it will be you. But trust me, there is a grammatical structure to the list as to why they are in this order. Number five, Paul is not not saying that all unsaved people or all Gentiles are guilty of all of these sins. You may very well read a few of the items on this list and say, well, you know, that's not me, to which I would say congratulations. But once again, it is not there exclusively to describe the totality of every sinner. These items are there, generally speaking, to characterize what sinners look like when they are left to themselves. Number six, most of the vices on this list do not need a definition. You do not need a description, a cross-reference, or an illustration. Even if you have never been to church before, if you speak English, you know what these words mean. So we're not going to take time to go through them and to define and illustrate them. Number seven, Although it is true that this is a description of the unsaved man, Paul is by no means saying that once you get saved, you will never struggle with these vices again. You know that you will. You know that you do. I know that I do. But it is to say, generally speaking, that the overall bent of one's life, the the overall characterization of how they live their life will not look like this list if indeed someone is saved. When someone is truly redeemed and converted, sin is no longer their master, sin is no longer the guiding principle of their life. And so what you have here is an overarching description of an unsaved person. Christians, for the most part, do not look like this. And when I mean for the most part, I don't mean for the most part Christians, I mean your life, for the most part, does not look like this. And if your life does look like this, well, you then need to be saved. And if you want to know what that means, please come and talk to me, and I will talk to you about how Jesus saves sinners. The final observation, number eight, about this vice list, comes from the opening phrase, and that says in uh, verse 29, they were filled with all manner, all manner, various different kinds, all manner of unrighteousness. 
Sin takes on many flavors, many different forms. It has a variety of expressions. Sin is never uniform. So my gossip is going to be putrefying in the nostrils of God. Your gossip is going to be putrefying in the nostrils of God. But we're going to go about it in different ways. There is all manner. There are many varieties of slander and envy. Not every sinner is equally bad. Not every sinner is a slave to the same sins with the same intensity. Not every sinner carries out their sinfulness in the same way. There are all manner of expressions. One of the reasons why pastoring a church is so difficult is because people are so stinking creative in ways that they choose to sin. If everyone sinned in the same way, my job would be really easy. It would just be cut and paste and meetings would be very short. But because sinners are filled with all manner or a a, a variety, it means it affects every area, all manner, and, and, and being filled means total depravity. Every aspect of their life is infected by this all manner of unrighteousness. And so with those eight overarching observations in place, uh, I want to look briefly at the list itself simply by reading it again very slowly. And I want you, as I read it, to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And as I read it, ask yourself, does this characterize your life? Or, by the grace of God, did this used to be you But now it's no longer there, and even the reading of the list says, wow, that is ugly, that used to be me. By the grace of God, that is not me anymore. Or, ask yourself, does this describe you? If that is the case, then you will know that you are one who needs salvation. Listen again as we read slowly. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Overarching theme, we are bad. Point number one, why we are bad. Point number two, how or in what ways we are bad. Finally, point number three, and that is that bad people want others to be bad or bad people let other people be bad without resistance. Here's what it says in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Please keep in mind that this is not addressed to the Jews, although the Jews would be guilty of this as well, but it is a reference here to unevangelized Gentiles, and as we have read earlier, they know that God exists. They are not animals. They are image bearers of God. They know that there's a difference between right and wrong, and Paul takes it a step further in this book or this verse, and he points out that not only do they know the difference between right and wrong, they know that their sins deserve punishment. Why do you think that people, I'm talking about people that have never had a Bible put in their hands, never heard the name of Jesus, why do you think that when they do something wrong, they sneak around to do it? It's not because they've had good teaching, it's because they are human beings, because they know that sin deserves punishment. So they know deep down that there is a judgment day and that there is a price to pay and that the price is eternal death. That does not mean that they know or understand the biblical doctrine of hell or perdition, but they however know that there is a judgment day coming and that the wages of sin is death. 
And yet, knowing this, Paul says it doesn't motivate them. They still don't seek God. They don't seek righteousness. And they certainly don't seek forgiveness. Instead, Paul says in this verse, they, even though they know that there is a judgment coming for doing these things, they go ahead and do them anyway. And then guess what? They double down and not only continuing, continue doing the 21 items on the vice list, but they encourage or persuade or influence other people to join them in doing it. Misery, the misery of sin, loves company. Verse 32, they give approval to those who practice them. It is the ultimate of you seeing someone that is doing something that is wrong and then saying, I'm not your judge. I'm, I'm not your judge. I'm okay, you're okay, right? Don't you come to me and, and talk to me about how I am in any way bad, and here's what I will do. I will return the favor to you. I will not talk to you about how you're bad. I'm okay, you're okay. After all, I'm living in a glass house. A person living in a glass house doesn't want to throw a stone, so I'm not your judge. And, 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 and hey, guess what? It's a free country, do, do if it feels good, go ahead and do it. That's that's not that's not between me and you. That's between you and whoever. As long as you don't hurt anyone, you know that is always at attached to it. As long as you don't hurt anyone, feel free to do as you please. I am going to embolden you to do something bad. I'm going to give you the green light. How do we do that? First of all, when you set an example as a sinner, in a brazen way, what you are doing is you are giving hearty approval. I was a little boy. There were some Christian young men in our church, and they really were Christian. They found it fashionable or cool to curse. And so what did I say? They didn't say, Eddie, it's okay for you to curse. What did I do? I listened to them. They did it. They're older than me. They're certainly better Christians than me. Therefore, if they can curse, it's okay for me to do it. Why did I curse? I cursed because my heart was full of cursing and bitterness, because I'm wicked. Why did I follow through with it in a fearless way? Because the example had been put in front of me. When you remain silent, when you see a fellow Christian in sin, you are giving approval. When you laugh at a dirty joke, you are giving approval. When you participate in gossip, you are giving your gossip partner approval. When a group of young people in the church go out and get drunk together, and yet they say nothing to one another, what are they doing? They are giving one another approval. When a group of old people in the church go out and get drunk together and do not say anything to one another, what are they doing? They are giving approval to one another. Anytime you say to another person, what you're doing is not so bad, you are giving them approval. Parents, when you allow your children to miss church in lieu of some other function or activity, you are giving them approval. Parents, when your children are doing something that is ungodly or unwise and you do not at least try to prohibit them, you are giving them approval. This week I was speaking to a pastor of one of our sister churches in the area. I was talking about a young man in his church who's a teenager, and we, we talked about you know trying to help this young man and, and said, well, what, what's the situation with the parents? And this pastor said, well, I, 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 I took him to his parents and I tried to talk to them, and the response of the father was, what am I supposed to do? I can't tell him what to do. Well, yeah, you see, that's kind of what parenting is. You know, you, you can, as long as they are minors and they're living in your house and they're eating your food and using your electricity, you really can tell them what to do. When you say that you cannot tell them what to do, you are giving them approval to do what is bad. And doing bad is bad, but it is worse to give approval for those who do bad. So unless you are the parent of a minor, I understand that you cannot stop another person from sinning, but you can at least try. You can at least say something. And here's where we find ourselves. We are so selfish and individualistic, 
we think of ourselves, not only do we sin and we enjoy sinning, but in our depravity, we feel no guilt when we take others down. So there is a mob mentality associated with sin, the more the merrier. I don't know if it's a case of misery-loving company or if it's just I don't feel so bad about myself if I know you are bad too. And, and I've, I've done this too. Like, like if I've seen other people in sin and I have not stopped them from sin because I was committing the same sin and what it did in a very warped way in my mind, it made me feel okay about myself because if I'm the only one that's doing this, well, how bad is that? But if there are others that are doing it as well, well, then I guess I'm not so bad. I'm not sure why it's true, but sinners who are distant from God are not judgmental of other sinners. On the contrary, they give total approval. And thus ends Romans chapter 1, the end of the description of lost Gentiles. So in closing, I want to give you six observations very quickly. Number one, Jesus was consumed with glorifying God the Father. He did find it convenient to retain God in his knowledge. He loved to think about and talk about and obey and glorify God the Father. He found God the Father to be a worthy use of his time. Hebrews 10.7, I have come to do your will, O God. Number two, even though we wanted nothing to do with Jesus and we would be content in being distant from him, we have tried to distance ourselves from him. Amazingly, he, the good shepherd, chases after us and catches us and saves sinners like we are. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God did not walk into the Garden of Eden to damn and condemn Adam and Eve. He came in there to save him. It was God's, it was God's goal to damn them. He just would have left them alone. Well, when God came after Adam, Adam was hiding in the garden. He, his children, the children of Adam, that's you and me, we've been hiding ever since. And amazingly, Jesus chases after and catches his elect and saves them, even though we by nature want to dismiss him from our minds. Number three, Jesus never sinned. The vice list of 21 items, Jesus has no experiential knowledge of any of those crimes on the contrary, he perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law of God. Number four, most importantly, even though Jesus never did any of those sins, he paid for all of those sins. The gospel is of first importance. Several years ago, I was walking to my car out in front of the church, and there was a traffic, an orange traffic ticket on it. I was getting ready to pay it, and I looked at it more closely, and I discovered that the license didn't even match my license, nor did the color of the car, nor the make. What someone had done is they had gotten the parking ticket and they put it under my windshield in hopes that I would pay it, and I was ready to pay it. <laughs> Try it. What do you have to lose? In the analogy, Jesus knew that he parked in the right spot with registration and inspection up to date, and yet, without opening his mouth, he paid for all of my vices and the cost was his death upon the cross. The gospel is of first importance, and Jesus paid it all. So what's the value today in studying the 21 vices if we can't get rid of them and get them forgiven? I'll tell you, you can get rid of them. You can for be forgiven of them by placing your trust in Jesus who died for these 21 vices and all of our other vices and sins. Number five, those of you who don't, those who do not care about you will condone your sin. They will give you approval. They do not love you. But Jesus loves you, and he will not approve of your sin. Hebrews 12, 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. If we wander off into sin, guess what? If we belong to him, he's going to come after us. He's not going to give us approval. Your friends who let you sin, they do not love you. Jesus knows that the sin is poison, and Jesus knows that the sin, by definition, is a distance from God. Jesus came to bring us close to God. Jesus will lovingly discipline you if you wander into sin. And number six, finally, please repent of your sin today for the simple reason that when you commit it, it is an indicator of your distance from God. 
You do not want to be given up from God for eternity. You do not want to be given up from God for even one hour. The most horrifying aspect of sin is that it is in some way a sure indicator that God is not close. The Bible says in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why? Because God loves you. I hope you remembered that while I was preaching. All right. One down, 15 to go, which means what? We're getting there. Father in heaven, I pray that more than anything else, Lord, we, want, we will want to be close to you, that our sin will remind us, Lord, that we are distant from you. I pray, Lord, that through Jesus Christ we will draw close to you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.